0: amen thanks for being with us my name is ben one of the pastors here at hope and today we're going to be in the book of job at the end of the book so if you have a copy of the scriptures you can flip or tap your way to job thirty-eight forty-one. you don't have a copy of the bible don't panic we'll have those words up there for you on the screen that may even be more helpful today because we're going to be jumping around so feel free to just write down some of those scripture references uh, we'd also love to give you a copy of the Bible, Modern English Translation. We'd love to hand you one of those on your way out. You can also download the Version app. Super helpful way to get the Bible on a like accessible device. Always there, we were talking about the book of Job. And if you've been with us, um, it's been clear even this morning and what we've sung and talked about. We're talking about suffering. And there's a whiplash moment in the book of Job where God says... This guy, Job, is the greatest guy in the East. He's bragging on him to the heavenly host. You see him boy Job? (laughs) Nobody liked Job from the the mouth of God. And so you're thinking, boy, this is going to go well for Job. And then the next chapter, that chapter, chapter one, he loses everything. Next chapter loses his health. God allows it. doesn't do it, but he allows it. He's making a big point, and we talked about that. I'd love for you to go back and listen to some of that. The whiplash of that moment is matched only, I think, by what happens at the end of the book. When again, you have this whiplash moment. Job is bottomed out. He doesn't have access to that heavenly conversation. So he doesn't know what's happening. He just bottoms out. And we spend chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of Job lamenting his suffering and fending off attacks from his friends who are insisting that this is his fault. God's just God. One to one, baby. If you did this, you're going to have... The payment for your crime, so fess up. What'd you do, Joby boy? And chapter after chapter, after chapter, Job is saying, "Not me. If only someone could stand before me, for God, because I, I got to get some kind of answer here. No, it didn't add up. And today what we're going to talk about is job's answer. To that prayer, where God responds, He actually meets with Job and He speaks to Him. But the way that He does it is so unexpected—whiplash is the word. You go into the New Testament. There's a guy named John the Baptist, and this guy is a big deal. Not John the Apostle. He didn't write the Book of John, but he came before Jesus. Was actually cousin of Jesus and was a preacher. And Jesus said about John, He said, "There is nobody born of women that's greater than John the Baptist." That's pretty good. I don't know what your resume looks like, but if somebody put on their resume greatest born among women with quotes and then attribute it to Jesus Christ, pretty impressive. And you know what John the Baptist said? One of the ways he attained that greatness? Here's his operating principle, John 3.30. God must increase. John must decrease. Think about that for a second. What he does not say is, God must increase and John must increase. That's how a lot of us think about religion. We think of God as a company, and we're going to invest in that company with our time, with our faithfulness, by putting our name on that religion. We're going to invest. And we're watching that investment. We're waiting to see as the stock in Christianity goes up. Well, the stock in Ben's going to go up. Ooh. He must increase, and boy, I'm going to increase along with him. But what does John say? God must increase, but I must decrease. Is it any wonder that our culture has totally flipped that over? And it's not just our culture, like, oh, let's demonize our culture. The human heart, through all cultures, has totally flipped that over? I must increase. And if that's going to happen, well, I need some space. God's going to have to decrease. And we do it in all kinds of ways, but one of the things we do is we try to shrink God by reducing the number of things he has control over. One of the ways there's a guy, or one writer kind of brought this together. He talked about the cruise control God. When you're a cruise control driver, you set the cruise control and then you steer, but nominally, and you relax. He probably wrote this before Tesla. Now you can just not even be a driver. You just sit in the driver's seat while the robot does it. The idea of the cruise control driver, though, is that you're not doing much, but you are watching. And when necessary, you jump in. Deer runs across the road. Now you've got to jump in. But until that happens, you're really not doing much. And I think many people, even Christians, put God in that box. That he's in control over some things, but there's a lot of things that are just sort of neutral. And over all the neutral things, God just sort of lets cruise control run. He's not really involved. And that's part of why you don't talk to him very much. Because he doesn't seem involved in most of your day. We cut God down. We cut God down even further because we say, well, surely God is not, he's not evil. He's not wicked. Any of the bad things that happen in the world, clearly are not God's fault. So, all of the stuff that's bad that happens to you, you bracket off and say, okay, well, God's not really in control of that either. He gets even smaller. Then you look around and you say, well, God is definitely going to be respectful of human autonomy. My my ability to choose is definitely not going to be infringed upon by God. So he's a respectful God. He waits on me. He's not going to go against what I've decided for myself, about myself, about my life, about my priorities. And so God gets even smaller because he can't infringe on your freedom. What's left? Can you see how... Culturally, we got to a point of what was called deism before kind of people embraced a a wholesale materialism. But the idea of deism was like God started this whole thing. He created all things. He kind of like spins it. He gets it moving. And then he says, okay, let's go do something fun. And just walks off. Many of us functionally live in a world with that kind of God. You wouldn't say that on a test when you decree what you believe about God. But functionally, you live as though He has control over very, very, very little. And when you do that, what you're doing is you're shrinking God down because you have to. I don't know that you naturally just want to shrink God down, but you definitely have to shrink down anything that's going to infringe on your ability to be. To get... Bigger, to grow in your, what the Bible would call, pride. When that happens, when suffering comes, what you lose is that in your suffering, you add suffering. Here's what I mean by that. Something bad happens to you, and because you're in control, and because God is very small, that bad thing that happens creates a lot of loneliness. It's on you. If you're running your world, it's on you to figure out what you're going to do about your suffering. If you've shrunk God down to Jiminy Cricket, I mean, he can bounce and sing, but he's not going to do much else. That was a reference to the Disney movie Pinocchio from like 1910. I don't know if anybody saw it. Jiminy Cricket, look it up. You can make God small, but if you do, when the suffering comes, what are you left with? When the suffering comes, there's a great deal of confusion because you say, How can, how can, how can God possibly allow this? How? And there's an increase in that confusion because you assume the premise that you can understand. So if I don't understand ipso facto, there must not be an explanation. You get ground up between two things that can't coexist and you're just confused lastly you add your suffering offense how dare god allow this towards me as you get bigger and bigger in your own eyes as you think of yourself as better Hope Church, we're all about saying that what the Bible says about us is true. What the Bible says even about our leaders is true, and that we're sinful people. But you go into a lot of religion, and what you find is people trying to take the laws of God and make them smaller and smaller so that they can say about themselves that they're better and better. And yet, if you do that, when suffering comes, you're going to be offended that God would allow such a thing to happen to you thought I left God in control. I know I'm good, and yet this has happened to me, so he must not be good. And this is where, for many of us, I don't know, I mean, we've talked about suffering. David mentioned this as he was talking earlier, that many of you have brought up in this time of talking about suffering stuff that's going on with you, either that was going on and we didn't know about it or it happened in the last four or five weeks. As you're telling us about it and you're dealing with it, you're going through a test of pain But in the Bible, the way that it structures things, this book of Job has another book that sort of matches it as two sides of a coin, which is the test of pleasure. Because you may be in Job's world right now where you're going through a ton of suffering, but you may be in Solomon's world. So the book of Job is part of the wisdom literature that also has the book of Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we have the story of this guy Solomon who had it all. And it increased. He was David's son. He was king over Israel at the height of its power. And so he then has everything. But not only does he have everything, like Job did at the beginning of his book, he then increases in everything. Solomon goes on to be the wisest, to be the richest, to be the most resplendent, to be the one who was married the most, had the most ladies. Anything you could think he did, but he didn't just do it. He did it to the most and he did it better than you. And he had much more return from it than you would have ever gotten. And yet, where Job passes the test of suffering, many of us, just like Solomon, fail the test of pleasure because where Job continues to worship God even in the dust heap, Solomon on his golden throne walks away from God, following after the idols of the wives that he took. It's only at the end of his life, and presumably, mean, he wrote Ecclesiastes, that he finds his folly and repents before God. So in both cases, we're being tested. And as we're being tested, we're being pulled apart. And the part that's inside of us comes out. And do we see ourselves as big or do we see ourselves as small? Do we see God as big or do we see God as small? And this is where things start to get that, that whiplash moment, because Job has gone through the suffering that he's gone through. And this is chapter 38. My goodness, 37 chapters of this stuff. And in chapter 38, you finally get God's response. And what you're expecting, what I'm expecting, is for God to be a mom. And Job's gone through the ringer. And what's more, he's got these idiot friends that are telling him it's his fault. It's just getting harder and harder and harder on poor Job. You would expect when God finally shows up for God to say, Come here, buddy. Oh, man. Listen. I get it. That's so bad. Come here. Start patting, Job. Can I tell you? For several millennia, people are going to read this book and they're going to get blessed. I'm doing some big stuff here, buddy. It's okay. Isn't that what you expect? All right, look what happens. Job 38, 1 through 3. Job's finished speaking. This guy, Eliphaz, which we didn't talk about, talks for a couple chapters. Job doesn't answer. And then you get chapter 38 where God finally speaks to Job. And instead of pulling him close, here's what the Lord says to Job. The Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dressed for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Quite apart from grabbing Job and pulling him in and healing up all of those sores, God puts his finger in Job's face from a whirlwind, from a tornado. Job finally wants God to speak, and he's standing on his own two feet before God himself and saying to him, what's going on? In that moment, Job, best man in the east whom God is pleased with, stands up and looks straight at God, and then God in that moment comes back, not as man to man, but as God to man. F5 tornado, they call it the finger of God. You have this whirlwind. And from that whirlwind, God himself speaks to Job. And he doesn't say, it's okay, buddy. He says, who is this fool that darkens wisdom by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I'm going to make it known to you. Uh, I'm going to question you, and you're going to make it known to me. And for the next couple of chapters, plural, God asks Job questions that are rhetorical in the sense that there's no answer Job can make. You would if you're proud, but Job, in this moment, speaking to a whirlwind, here's what God starts to say. He starts to address how he created the earth's foundations, that he put the bases and the cornerstones together. And he says to Job, verse 4, chapter 38 Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, what's happening. And you're going to see this over and over again. It's like a a bolt that he's turning over and over and over. And it's getting tighter and tighter and tighter as he's doing the same function. He's taking Job and he's saying, look at the grandeur of your assumption about yourself. Let me squinch it back down to where it actually is supposed to be. And let you remember that tiny little God that you thought I was is actually in charge of all. It says in verse four, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. He goes on in verses eight through eleven to talk about the sea, which is a symbol of chaos for the Israelites. You can't plant crops, you can't have herds on the sea, you just try to survive the sea as it rolls and boils. It's a symbol of chaos, and yet God is saying he has complete control over it, does Job? Verses twelve to fifteen he talks about the days and the mornings, but not just the mornings, but the light uh, and the darkness. And he's looking kind of poetically through light and dark to talk about how God is God even over what is righteous and what is wicked. He says in verse 15, from the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted, their uplifted arm is broken. 16 to 21, impenetrable darkness of the deep. He talks about going down into the depths of the sea where no light can penetrate. And even there he is God, was Job. And then he goes up to the tippy top, wherever the, the source of all light comes from. And he says in verse 21, you know, if you were born then and the number of your days is great you know what that is? That is sarcasm. God used sarcasm to shrink Job down. Just enjoy it for a second. I don't know. I think that's pretty good. When I was in college, I had a buddy named Josh. And I think I was being a little mean. I don't remember what it was I said. But I was being sarcastic. And uh, Josh turned and looked at me and said, You know what my dad told me? Sarcasm is not a fruit. Of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And then he turned back to what he was doing. And I was kind of like, oh, oh, geez. (laughs) So for like a decade, I'm like scouring the scriptures, trying to find some like basis for. Because what's left? You take away sarcasm. What do you talk about? But then you get you have Paul a little bit in Corinthians. And then here, God is taking a verbal pen and popping the balloon. Job doesn't even realize there's a bubble there, popping it. Hey, surely you know, you were born then, the number of your days is great. Hey, Joby boy? He goes in 22 to 30 to talk about the waste places where there are no people and how God has control over that, was Job. The stars, the weather, the lions, the ravens, the wild animals, the mountain goats that give birth without man's help. Not the little goats that Job keeps or kept before the Sabaeans took them away, but the, the little goats that they would milk and keep? No, no, no. We're talking about the wild mountain goats. You get up into temp, and it's just hours and hours and hours away. You finally get there, and all of a sudden, there's all these goats just looking at you. They've been there forever. The god is taking care of the wild donkey that will obey no driver, the wild ox not working for any man, the ostrich. Which, again, it's kind of like, <laughs> where did that one come from? But the ostrich is a wild animal that has no understanding. That talks about how much of an idiot the ostrich is, that it lays its eggs and just walks away. It doesn't keep the egg, it doesn't care for the egg, it might even trample the egg. And yet, the ostrich is faster than a horse with a rider. And I looked it up, that's true. It laughs at the horse and the rider. Why are there still ostriches if they can't even keep up with their eggs? Because God is in control. He talks about the war horse. This is chapter 39. We're down in verses 19 to 25. He talks about the war horse. How grand and grandiose is in the heart of a war horse. What's inside a war horse? Where the trumpet blows, it can't even hold itself back. It's got, it's got to go and it runs. And it divides the spears as it runs through. He talks about the circling hawk and the diving eagle. Verse uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty He who argues with God, let him answer it. And he's saying that because for the last two chapters, he's been asking Job questions and Job's got nothing. And God's saying, hey boy, you have your little area that you think you understand, but I'm showing you that that area is extremely small and that I'm in control over all things. And you're going to find fault with the Almighty? You're going to argue with me? Verses 3-5, through five, Job says he lays his hand over his mouth, but God's not done. God continues. Verses 6-14 to 14 of chapter 40, he says, you try to be God. What do, you, do, you, do you think that if you had my prerogative, if you had my wisdom and you sat on my throne, that you would do things so much differently than I'm doing them? Then, in the rest of chapter 40 and almost all of chapter 41, God talks about these two giant things. One called a behemoth. And one called a Leviathan. And he talks in verses 10 and 11 about this Leviathan in chapter 41. He says, No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who is first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. What he's doing is he's again helping Job understand. Because he's saying... You have your understanding, but your understanding is over a very small piece of territory. And then there's everything else. And all of this wildness and all of this chaos and all of this deep, big, gigantic, bigger than you stuff, I have control over. And if you go home today and you read about Behemoth and Leviathan, there's a part of your brain. And I don't know, maybe not, but it's most people. It definitely was me. You're reading it and you're thinking to yourself, now, what is he describing here? Is this a hippopotamus? Is this crocodile? Is this some kind of dinosaur? It's talking about big bones of bronze and the world shaking as it walks, like, oh, maybe this is a big brontosaurus or something. And then you're like, no, because it talks about plates on its back that are interlocking, so you're like, oh, maybe it's like a, a stegosaurus. But then you get in, it's talking about some sort of aquatic piece, that this animal is like a sea marine kind of animal, and you're like, oh, okay, maybe like a killer whale or something. But then it says that this animal breathes fire, I don't know what animal does that. I don't think any of them do. And what's the point? The point is that you're trying to take this thing and understand it. And he's saying you can't. You're doing what we always do, what our culture has taught us to do. It's just what you drunk with the water. You say to yourself, okay, here's some concept. I'm going to take this thing and I'm going to put it into the trash compactor of my pride and I'm going to try and squeeze it down into something that's small enough for me to put it in the little universe that I've assembled for myself. And the behemoth and the leviathan don't fit. And the whole reason that they exist in scripture is to show you that if they don't fit, God definitely doesn't fit because he takes the leviathan and the behemoth and he plays with them like little things. They break us apart. Nobody can stand up to him. But for God, He puts a leash on them and lets His little girls play with them. He doesn't have little girls. But he's, he's saying that that's what Job used to do. He used to have little girls and He'd get a little puppy. Everybody play with the puppy. Put it on a leash and let the little kids play with it. The little girls would lead it around and they'd all, oh. And that's what God does with this thing that is so unspeakably gigantic. And let it become gigantic in your head. Let it be a dragon that gets bigger and bigger and shakes mountainsides. Because no matter how big Behemoth is, God is so much bigger. And that's the point. The point is that there are so many layers that you cannot conceive of between where you are and where God is. That's the response that God makes to He shows in all this that God has total control over the wild things. Over all the things. And that Job has a total lack of control. We don't have the time, but if you had the time to sit there and read it, and I bet you do this afternoon, you would hear it and it would be just like a hammer. Bonk, bonk, bonk. Driving the nail home. That... Job can't respond, because God keeps saying it in the form of question. Where were you? Do you? Have you? When you were? Surely you know about. And to all of these things, Job, of course, has to say no. So Job responds in that way. Verse chapter 42, verses 2 through 6, Job finally says, God, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's quoting God. Therefore, I have uttered what is what I did not understand, things too wonderful me for wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. He's again quoting God, and he responds. He says, "I've heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you." Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, when I said whiplash, I I meant it. If your kid came to you and was really hurt, is this how you would respond? Even if it was their fault. And it doesn't say that this was Job's fault, but even if it was their pride that led him to it, is this how you would respond? Why does God respond this way? I think you can feel sorry for Job and you can feel some sort of contempt for God at being maybe heavy handed. But think about what we talked about in the beginning how, in your pride, you can make God so small and yourself so big that when suffering comes, you add to that suffering the loneliness, the confusion, and the offense. Can I tell you that as you read through the book of Job, that Job has all of those things expressed? Talks about being alone. Who can who can answer to God for him? Who can stand before God for him? Clearly he's alone from his friends, and clearly he's alone from God. He's got confusion. Why is this happening? I know that I never looked on a virgin lustfully. I know that I've never turned away a sojourner. My charity was unspeakable. How, how has this happened to me? Confusion. And offense. Cursing the day that he was born. And yet when God speaks to Job and gives Job the gift of a right perspective between him and God, he now can respond totally differently. He can respond to his suffering with humility. We'll talk about this next week, but when he responds to his friends, these friends who have spent all these chapters just dragging Job down, he can see that, yeah, he's better than these guys. He was right and they were wrong. But the gap between Job and the friends is so small compared to the gap between Job and God that he can respond with love and humility to these people that hurt him. Jesus telling you to love your enemies. How do you do that? It's by understanding the gap between you and God. Is having that little bit of humility. It's a bitter pill, but when it gets down, it's sweet. Job now has trust. He can look at the one who is master of the Leviathan and make the Leviathan roll over like a puppy and say, I don't understand, but I trust. Do you see how hard this is for us? For us, we want to understand Not many of us would make that bargain. We want to understand. We want to take the whole of whatever mystery it is, and we want to crunch it down into something small enough to fit into our understanding. And we think we can because we have this amazingly optimistic view of our understanding. But how does an ocean fit in a thimble? You're not going to understand it. What you need instead is one who is so much greater than you that they totally understand it, and you can simply trust. Job goes from being somebody who insists on understanding to becoming somebody who simply has to trust. And lastly, instead of offense, he has God's presence. He doesn't have light that allows him to understand everything that's happening. He's still in the darkness, but in that darkness, he has God's hand. In the East, at that time... It's just insane for somebody who's so much greater to speak to somebody who's so much less. And yet God takes the time to produce this whirlwind and then speak to Job because he's with Job. All of this should help you to understand what we've been saying about how Jesus is with us in this fire. How Jesus, being God, comes and dies in order to hold our hands and go with us Through death. We're going to talk next week about where we land. Because we go through death. We don't stay there. We're not going to stay in all this horribleness. We go through it and we land in this resurrection. We land in all this light. But he does hold our hand in order to go through it. One great illustration that I've heard is you think about being in a big room with your kid and you're talking or playing or whatnot. And all of a sudden, power goes out. All of everything just... And there's that weird sort of sound version of it, too, because all the lights go out, but then you also hear like the refrigerator or the dishwasher or whatever go Boom. If your kid's little, or big and just a chicken, they get super, super scared, because all the lights's gone. And what do you do as a parent? Do you immediately start to teach them about how power grids work and about how sometimes you know you're going to have some stuff in this? And let me tell you about the time when, blah, 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 blah. Is that helpful? Do You explain to them about breakers and how sometimes you got to go back and flip the breaker. And well, we've got push button breakers instead of flipping flip breakers. And so, you know, know, know. is that helpful? Does that mean anything to the four year old? No. What you do is you grab them, grab their hand, you just pick them up. You say, "Ah, that's fine. Let's go. And you walk what God has done is not turn the light on to explain everything to us. I don't know that it's possible for that to fit inside us. Instead, what he's done is say, hold my hand. Let's go. Last week, we took the Lord's Supper. When we took the Lord's Supper, we were remembering Jesus saying, take and eat. This is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood poured out for you. I don't, I don't know that I can. And, and in some way, I'm going to respond to God with trust and say that I don't have to understand everything. If I can see how God can wrestle the Leviathan of the death of Christ into The salvation of humanity. Come back next week. We're going to talk more about this. We're going to think about how this momentary affliction can produce an eternal weight of glory. But before we get there and for it to happen, there has to be trust. He's holding his hand out to you. Are you going to take it? And there's no pressure. We're Hope Church, we're helping you take your next step. And there's going to be a lot of steps for some people between hearing this stuff and making that decision. Totally fine. you got a ton of air here. Belong before you believe. But that is the invitation. Is that you'll hold on to the hand of the one who's wanting to go through this darkness with you. And yeah, it's going to be trust. Trust that says, I'm not perfect or even good. You are holy and you are greater than me. And I need You to fix me. Are you willing to do that? Not again. Come back next week. Let's talk more about it. We pray, believer and non-believer, that this would be what we do, that we would cling, and that he would become greater, and we would decrease. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I pray in this moment that you would make these things clear and true. I, I, I just... I know that while they are true outside of us, it's just all kinds of hairy things they have to get through before they seem true to us. So I just pray that you would give the people that are here this morning the kind of community, the kind of space, the kind of graciousness that they need to take those steps towards understanding and eventually belief. I pray, Father, that you would make these things not only true and real, but relevant to us. That we would be the kind of people who are able to stay um, standing through our suffering. Not because of our native strength, but because we're not alone, because we've been humbled, and because we trust. I pray that you do these all—all all of these things for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen.